4 o'clock football frenzy on Cofield and Company. Rolling into the 4 o'clock hour. You know, uh, five minutes ago we played Devontae Adams. Do you recognize the music, a little MJ? Of course do I recognize it. I used to spin that. Used to spin it. We used to have two. We, you know, back then there's there was no computer. Back in the day, the, in the old the, days, no, no, no little tiny discs with with a computer in the middle. It was actual wax on both sides, and we would have it set up with the mixing board. And you used to have to draw a line in ink on the label so you knew where to to rewind your 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 record, and, and so it would line up with the stylus. And we would mix, go back and forth, and scratch on the woo on "Don't Stop Till You Get Enough." So you go back and forth, and you try to go whoop 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 whoo, and you go back and forth with the two records. It was a it was an art back with the little discs. They're not doing anything, right? They're just acting like you they're can, doing something. You can you can simulate. I think you can scratch, but it, the difference is, is that it's electric. It's through the computer, and they have samples on the mixing boards. Whereas before Newmark came out with samplers on their mixing boards, you had to do it physically with with wax with records. I mean, I would walk in with eight crates of records to do a wedding. Not a computer with a library. So Willie's uh, music-inspired ESPN Las Vegas Cofield and Company poll question. It's up at ESPN Las Vegas on Twitter. We've also all retweeted it, so you can check out our accounts. Who is the GOAT as far as entertainers? This was a discussion that was uh, started by uh, NFL player, former NFL player, ESPN analyst Ryan Clark. Who is the GOAT? That question was between Michael Jackson and Chris Brown. Um, Willie threw in print, so go give us an answer if... You got any comments? Certainly leave a comment. And if it's none of those dudes, tell us who it is. Yeah, tell us who it is. So at ESPN Las Vegas, the poll question is up there. Right now, Chris Brown has zero, <laughs> zero votes. <laughs> News out of college football. You know, we've got all these teams switching conferences. The domino effect of Texas and Oklahoma bailing on the Big 12. Big 12 went out quickly and added four schools. Uh, I, I think depressing for UNLV fans to see BYU. Um, you know, giant pain in the ass to deal with from a scheduling standpoint and other stuff about a lack of inclusivity. Um, and then Central Florida, who's just kind of new to the football table. And not like UNLV's had a great football program. It hasn't been great, but I, I don't know. I, would I pick Orlando over Las Vegas? It's a market? No. But UNLV has a lot of work to do. But anyway, um, because of the domino effect, right? So you got Cincy, Houston, Central Florida have agreed to exit the American Athletic. They're going to start in the Big 12 next year in the summer of 2023. Mm. Well, then the AAC responded by going out and get a bunch of schools. And I thought it was really interesting that Charlotte, the Charlotte football program started less than 10 years ago, 2013. They're already now in the AAC coming up. And for me, the AAC is about the same level football conference, maybe a little behind because they lost some of these schools. But it ain't far behind the Mountain West. So Charlotte hasn't played 10 years of freaking football? Uh, I'm going to have to disagree. And I think, well, right now, as it stands before 2023, the AAC is in front of the Mountain West. Ooh, I thought you were going to defend the Mountain West. No. Are you sure? They lost some really good programs. I just said before 2023, as it stands right now, now. the the look of it today. Right. It it's better than the Mountain West, and and that's why they're being pilfered. So yes, um, and you know what? I, I actually I take it back. I don't know that it's great coming up with the schools they've added. They still have 
Uh, East Carolina, Tulsa, SMU, I think is a pretty good program. Memphis can be Navy solid temple, South Florida and Tulane. So, and, you're, and this, and, and this conversation is obviously based on football. Yes. On football. Yeah, it's all so, football. So yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the AAC in the mountain West needs to have a little, uh, super conference. Yeah. But no, I, no, I, no, 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 no. They need to have oh, a little challenge. Yeah. A little challenge. Nah, I wouldn't. That's. Like like I said, if they're even or the new AAC is going to be beneath the Mountain West, I would never punch down. I would always try to punch up. Always try to schedule up. Those are the money games, too. Right? All the schools in the Mountain West could use, most of them, could yeah, use money. Like Hawaii should never, ever play a team that's below them unless it's you know in the Mountain West. They need money. They're going to be playing think, until their new stadium's done. For the next couple of years, Hawaii's playing in a 9,000-seat stadium. Okay, so in that regard, though, do you think if you if you were to ask the people of Memphis if if they're punching up or down to San Jose State, they're going to say they're punching down. Yeah, I know they're. Yeah. They're wrong. Mm. Conference-wise, or, 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 program or you could say San, well, San Jose State might just be in a they – they actually do have a pretty rich football tradition. They're just up and down. But there's actually a lot of capital investment at San Jose. Right now, the stadium looks terrible because it was it – was, I think it was built in like 1921 – a historic stadium, but they blew out the one side. I know they're building a training facility, a new football facility, and they're going to build up, you know, they're going to redo the stadium, build up the one side. Um, I forget. Someone was talking about it. Man, I cannot remember. It was, um, oh, I think someone was, someone was, uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll, to put, put you behind the curtain here, right? There are, there are some new college sports media people who have built themselves up. And one of the ways you build yourself up is to be an ass kisser with the coaches that will talk to you, right? So there's a, a dude out there uh, who we've actually had on the show, Aaron Torres, but I can I can kind of see like he has this love fest with like ten coaches because they talk to him. Mm. Hate Steve Alford, loves Muss, defend Sean Miller to no end. So then I saw him, you know, earlier in the summer. He's like Jim Moore, Jim Moore, Jim Moore. I'm like, bro, all right, he talks to you. Chillax, right? Right. You don't. And UConn got like, you know, UNLV's had about the same thing, eight or nine power five transfers and UConn got the same thing. And then he made a comment about, you know, UConn is, you know, a better program than San Jose state. I'm like, not right now. It ain't like, first of all, I don't know. I I like Jim Moore. He's been on the show. I don't know if Jim Moore is going to last three years there. And if Jim Moore is going to take on the East coast, but Brett Brennan is, or Brent Brennan is a, Good He's a good coach, coach yeah. and San Jose can. It's a it's a good school. It's in a talent rich area, all of California. They can be a good program for a while. I don't know that UConn is going to be a good program in football again. It reached some decent heights under Randy Etzel, but yeah, I'm not sure that it's going. But it, but that's kind of that. You know, East Coast, West Coast. It's actually you know, it's not even that because he's a West Coaster. It's that that coach will talk to him. So. He's going to fluff them up a little bit. I'm going to tell you the the Mountain West school to, and I think we've talked about this, but where you know when the Mountain West starts to sort of get dissected and, and teams go because the one team that I always look at the first those first three four weeks of non conference play when they have a power conference come in, not right. when they travel, right. because I think that the power conferences that go to this city they have no clue what they're in store for, and they're always laying a big number. And I'm always looking for the double-digit, two-touchdown-plus under home underdog in Laramie because Wyoming, and we've talked about the money that flows through those stands with mm-hmm. those boosters, they're going to be attractive to a conference like the Big 12 because 
because of the backing that they have, the money that they have, and that home field, that home court advantage, and they kind of fit in that mountain-esque geographical area. A lot of things stood out at Raiders camp. Uh, I thought the media availability the other day with Jonathan Abram was pretty interesting. Listen to him here. By the way, it only lasted like four minutes, and I thought there were like 27 questions. Your take on Patrick Graham and what he brings. He brings, the, honestly, he's the glue. He's the, he's the guy who brings us all together, you know, loud, quiet. At the end of the day, you know, his one job is to make sure he puts us all in the best position and, you know, to get us going every single day, even when we don't have the juice. And so, so far he's done that. And, you know, I look forward to seeing him to continue to do that throughout the season. You, you said you don't really feel the pressure. You don't think about it in terms of the contract situation. But, you know, two different years, uh, moving around a little bit. Are, does, does he instill a bit of confidence in you that whatever role he asks you of you that you're prepared to do that? I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, I put the work in just like everybody else. So, you know, the confidence comes from getting out there, getting the reps, and constantly just building things, you know, not what the media says. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and he was... And uh, by the way, at the end, not what the media says. So he is clearly aware of commentary by fans and media about where his career has been to this point and the fact that the fifth-year option wasn't picked up. Yes, and... I mean, and the, and the, the, the reason I asked the question is because it was crystal clear why he was put into the box, you know, when he, he, he couldn't tackle, he couldn't make open field tax, tackles in, in the safety position. He just wasn't getting it done. He was getting beat. He was getting beat one-on-one. He was, get, you know, runners getting past that first leg. I mean, when you're the safety, the reason is called the safety. I mean, you get past the defensive line, you get past the linebacker, you get past the DBs, you're supposed to be able to make them open field tackles, and he couldn't. He was getting beat. They put him in the box. He did a little bit better as a box safety, um, sort of playing that little bit of a pickup linebacker role just inside that box. But So it, I thought it was a legit question, but he you know, took it defensively. Why wouldn't I? Well, you wouldn't, you know, because – I think that your your skill set has been questioned by the coaches in the past, including a defensive coordinator like Gus Bradley. So, and not necessarily questioned, but sort of pigeonholed. Um, but I think to all the questions, everybody that asked him, he was very quick, very sort of terse. Um, he didn't want. He didn't look comfortable. Didn't look comfortable like a lot of the guys that came in there. Had fun with the media. Was a little bit jovial. Um, you know, a couple. They didn't look, not that they didn't want to be there, but it just, you know, they don't do a lot of media. The, you know, a certain offensive lineman thought Leatherwood was a little him and Han tense, but I don't think that was personal and I don't think he was being defensive. Jonathan Abram, I felt, was very defensive. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. And I want fans to enjoy themselves. I mean, of course, as the league office, you want to see it done with respect for all the participants. But I get it. I love the energy that the Boston fans bring to the game. It's time for former Oakland Raider and NFL insider Stanford Rout on Cofield and Company. But listen, I have no idea if there was a follow-up about Boston fans cussing at the Warriors, but... If that was just an isolated statement, I and I wish it was. I love the fact that you know possibly Adam Silver is telling the Warriors to shut the hell up with their whining about the Boston fans. Let's bring in Stanford Route. Stanford played in front of the black hole in Oakland. Can be a rough crowd. Stanford, I want to get to football, but I want to talk some NBA. Have you seen 
Some of the complaining by the Warriors about the Boston fans being too mean to them. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I like I can tell you like this. Anybody that knows anything about the United States and anything about that northeastern part of the United States and preferably the city of Boston, Boston, a.k.a. Beantown, you know that they are known for having a ruckus crowd. They are known for having those fans who will say anything that that they that they dare uh, come that they dare even imagine in their mind. And also, you know, uh, we also know Boston did necessarily not be the most all-encompassing, all-inviting, let's just go ahead and call it maybe a little bit of prejudice uh, going on in that town. But See, uh, that- they definitely have passionate fans, no doubt about it. So it would not be surprising at any stretch that the Golden State Warriors are griping and they are complaining about some of the things that the fans of Boston are saying to them. Do you think it's getting to their heads, like they're taking it into account too much? Uh, maybe it is taking into account and maybe a little bit too much, but I think it's probably more indicative of just everything coming together with that Boston defense with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart actually going and making big plays uh, in games one and now game three that you saw on Wednesday in Boston. I think it's more indicative of everything all coming together. So you already know. And I can tell you just like from prior uh, experience from being out there on the gridiron, if you're already playing, at Green Bay. You playing at Lambeau Field or we're playing out there in Denver. Or we're playing down there in San Diego, the old Qualcomm Stadium, and we're playing against a team like a Philip Rivers or like an Aaron Rodgers and we're already struggling because we're playing against another great team. So all it takes is somebody from the stands to say something to you. Hmm. And when you're at your normal mind, when you're at your cooler head, it probably is something you can get past. But because you're already with emotions running high, a lot of anxiety, you're already frustrated because the game isn't exactly going the way that you wanted it to, then all it takes is somebody to say something that may be a little bit more on the mild side or maybe a little bit more on the acceptable side or, you know, I can digest that. But in those types of situations, it's going to go ahead and make that cup runneth over just because emotions are already through the roof. So you mentioned Boston and their history, right? Some uh, racial issues in the past. And Draymond Green said, I'm glad my son was here because now he sees the two Americas. Do you think in this case chanting F Draymond has something to do with race? Oh, no, that doesn't have anything to do with race. That just is simply that they don't (laughs) like Draymond Green because he is somebody that is going to run all the way up to the line and he is going to tow it as far as what the difference is between just uh, playing tough basketball or dirty plays or things like that. So I don't think that has anything to do with race. I could see how somebody could misconstrue that to thinking so, but uh, for what Draymond Green has been to the NBA ever since he got there, coming out of Michigan State, he knows that he's not somebody that is a shooter. So he's not going to go out there and average 20 points. He knows that he is not Chris Paul, so he's not going to go out there and have 15 or 20 assists, but he's somebody that's like a Swiss Army knife. He's going to go out there. He's going to play good defense. He knows how to make plays whenever the ball is in his hand. He's going to set screens. He's going to set picks. He's going to get rebounds. He's going to get loose balls. He's going to die for them. He knows that he's like that Swiss Army knife, and also he's the battery that actually gets 
everything rejuvenated within that Golden State Warriors starting five just because from an energy and emotion standpoint. So with all that being said, like it's uh, with all that being said, Draymond Green knows what he has to bring to the game. And it's one of those types of things that if he is your teammate, you love it. If he's your opponent, you are going to hate it. And then that's where the fans come in out there in Boston. They already don't like that. So they're going to make sure that if they can in any way sway the mind, sway the concentration of the, the competition, they are definitely going to do that. And that's they did a lot in game three. And I would expect them to do that in about another hour and a half for game four. Football insider, Stanford route. Good stuff there. Let's get to college football and then the NFL. First, we've had this ongoing discussion about NIL. And oh we keep hearing from the big-name coaches, and I, I think it comes off as whiny. Ohio State's Ryan Day last week talked about, oh, I need like $13 million to keep together a good roster at Ohio State, which, come come on, bro. You have every advantage now. You know, you, Right now, you're going to whine about money. Um, and then, funny enough, a week later, it turns out they've got a picture of his quarterback, C.J. Stroud, and L deal with like a $200,000 Mercedes. What do you think of the Ohio State coach saying, hey, we need like 13 mil a year to keep, you know, this kind of roster together? You know, when you, whenever you first read those comments or you actually hear the statement uh, live, initially, that's what you go to. Oh my God, why is Ryan Day complaining? Why is he whining? <laughs> and then when you take a step back and you actually think about everything in totality, you think about all the orbiting factors of having the NIL now in place, but it not being necessarily regulated. And they're not enforcing certain rules about, okay, you know what? You can't use the NIL deal to actually go ahead and entice a recruit to sign with your university. But they're, like I said, they're not enforcing that. So when you think about everything in totality, I can see where Ryan Ryan Day is coming from, and I think that he's speaking to the donors. He's speaking to the boosters. He's speaking to the alumni. Yeah. Hey, I know how all of you feel about Ohio State football. I know how all of you want the Buckeyes to always continuously be in the college football playoff, to always have a Heisman Trophy candidate and all of those things. Well, to do that in today's game, in today's college football, this is probably the number I'm going to need every year Man. to get these recruits to come to this university. And I say that because let's think about what's going on going on down in Austin. <laughs> you see uh, Quinn Ewers, he's now riding around in the Aston Martin. And good Lord, B. John Robinson, we know he's going to be a first-round draft pick. Come on now. <laughs> but, like, I said, fellas, I'm 38. <laughs> and B. John Robinson is, what, 20, 21, <laughs> right. 19? I don't know. But here, I know bro. this. <laughs> He's riding around in a Lambo oh, yeah. in Austin, Texas. Good Lord. So I think for Ryan Day's standpoint, he's basically saying, hey, this is what it's going to take for us to go ahead and continue to get the top recruits and have the stranglehold on the Midwest to have a stranglehold on college football recruiting like we have been able to successfully do over I don't even know how many years for us to continue that. That is what it's now going to take because we no longer can walk into a kid's home and tell his parents and tell even this recruit that, hey, kid, we're Ohio State. We're the Ohio State. Just go ahead, put the uh, pen to paper and sign on and go ahead and come with us. You can't necessarily do that anymore. Now it's going to be about, well, uh, such and such school is offering me, you know, such and such amount of dollars. Well, you know, coach, you know, what are you willing to offer me or what kind of deal can I get going to your school? Because I see there's another school that's getting uh, their recruits 
X amount of dollars and they've just signed their national letter of intent. So it's definitely a different level of competition now with all the schools throughout all of the country and all the sports, but especially we know football is king. Stanford, I've been saying that uh, once somebody big in Las Vegas steps up with all the casinos and all the past booster money that's helped fund prior to the pro sports, right, that, that's been around for the running Rebel heyday, once somebody steps up, UNLV could make a run because, considering the city. Andre Agassi's helping fund a new NIL program for UNLV athletes. Uh, Bill Paulus, longtime Las Vegas business executive, UNLV men's uh, basketball booster chairs the program. It's called Friends of UNILV, so U-N-I-L-V. Mm-hmm. Um, how big can this be, and how big can it grow in this town as Agassiz lends his name, first big name to step up? I think that I would say that it could. It, it has the potential to be big, has the potential, but I would say, realistically speaking, I don't see it getting – gargantuan and i say that because to still be able to get the top-notch kids unless you're out there offering five million dollar nil deal ten million dollar nil deal i would say that you're still gonna probably lose to the bigger type of schools as far as the power five conferences just because of that they're power five schools so when you're talking about unlv football it's gonna still be hard for a recruit to choose unlv over usc Okay, you know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and I'm gonna I'm gonna debate you on this one. And I'm gonna say that oh, okay. when <laughs> when former Las Vegas stars or UNLV athletes, what, whatever sport they happen to play in, and they cut their big deals like a Bryce Harper, like a Chris Bryant, like in the NFL, that you know some of the local guys when they get bigger and sign their next contract, that they're gonna eventually chip in because they're going to want to see this town rise, and I think they're going to be able to raise the funds to a higher level. Stanford, what are they doing at Houston? Do they embrace you guys? I mean, yes, they embrace us, but like like I said, it's still not to the level of, you know, the blue bloods of the Power 5 school. And so to your point. Like, hey, Stanford, give give us a million dollars a year. Come on, don't you want us us to win? You're like, eh, exactly a million. How about that? And and now listen, I'm not giving my school, my alma mater, a million dollars. Also, they can go ahead and give it to some kid who's 18, 19, and he's going to go and blow it on something stupid anyways because we're all stupid at that age when it comes to decision making. The frontal lobe is not fully developed, so I'm not doing that but like i said if they want to go talk to you know the tillman fertitas of the world hey by all means i completely understand it and you know to piggyback on the on the original point that's where you got the ohio states of the world you got the i mean like for crying out loud think about how many alum are from usc think about how many of the boosters and supporters of a school like usc or a ucla they just simply can outbid you because yes we all know a lot of money in las vegas now i'm not exactly sure how many of the wealthiest people are alum of unlv i'm not sure on that so let me go ahead and say that before i make my statement but when you know when you talk about ucla when you talk about usc you see the types of people that are on the sidelines at the coliseum during usc games who are just simply friends of the program when you put all of that together they'll still be able to outbid you as far as trying to find some top-notch kid, some four-star, some five-star blue-chip recruit out there on the West Coast. They can simply outbid you, and you already know, whenever you come to the table and you're playing blackjack or you're playing 
uh, you're playing roulette or you're playing poker or whatever you want to call it against a rich person, you can go ahead and kind of beat them, nickel and dime them a little bit. But all they got to do is hit one good time and you got to get up from the table. And so whenever you're talking about these top-notch Power 5 schools, that's essentially what you're doing. You're trying to beat them in a game of blackjack. And all they got to do is win one time. You got to get up from the table. And that's why I think mm -hmm. it's uh, – that's why I think the potential for all of this going on for you and I – for you and ILV, the potential is there, no doubt about it. But realistically speaking, I'm not sure that this can usurp the other big name schools right. within this competition race. Yeah, to your point on USC, they could go to like George Lucas and Sawidi and ask them for money. Exactly. Yes, believe it or not, that's where. Believe it or not, she actually I mean, is an SC an SC person. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> you, like, money Will Ferrell's like Will, Will Ferrell's like a yep. huge friend of the program. You know, <laughs> Colin Coward, he loves USC, especially you no know, now that Lincoln Riley is there. So just <laughs> there's so many people associated with, and I'm and I'm just using USC yeah. as a euphemism. Yeah. Like there's a whole lot of other big name schools out there within the Power Five that there are just so many people that are just associated. Like we look at UT. Like Red McCombs. Red McCombs used to own the Minnesota Vikings. He's owned the San Antonio Spurs. He has so many car dealerships that I, I can't even name all of them and all the cities that they're in. But I know this. He gives UT $10 million a year. And that's just before NIL even came into play. He gives $10 million a year to UT. That's why he's got the business school and things like that named after him. And when you think about people that have that level of net worth, that have that level of wealth, that are able to just every single year <laughs> write a seven or an eight-figure check to a university, and they've already figured that into their finances for that year, that's where it's going to be really, really tough to go ahead and hang with the big dogs, or should I say the Power 5 schools. Stanford route is up. Last two minutes, Stanford, we, we kind of ran out of time on a lot of the NFL stuff, but I do want your reaction to the way the Raiders are spending their money, and they just uh, signed up Renfro to two more years, extended on the end of the deal at two years and $32 million. What do you think? I think that uh, it's pretty much right there, spot in uh, with where uh, with with where I think uh, Hunter Renfro is. Like I said, it's going to be about sixteen million a year. You see, last year he had a very good season, a thousand yards. Pretty much was kind of like the go-to receiver down the stretch with Darren Waller being on the shelf for uh, much of that part of the season. I don't think he's going to be the number one go-to guy this year because obviously you got a, you have a Derek Carr with his college teammate within a Devonte Adams. But nonetheless, I do like this deal because when you see the growing number for receiver contracts on the annual per year salary and you see how cooper cup did not break the bank got a lot of money did not exactly break the bank and him and hunter renfro essentially played the same position that's what hunter renfro was going to be looking to get in about two years whenever this deal is up or whenever he's looking to go ahead and re-extend so i like this deal because i think that he's a very fine player what do you got planned this weekend anything big uh, not too much, man. Probably just work out and relax. And man, like I said, we're about 100 degrees right now, which is a, I know nothing compared to the dry Vegas heat. No. But uh, definitely try to go ahead and cool off and stay out of this sun. There you go. Thanks, Stanford. Have a good weekend. You guys be good. I'll talk to you next week. See ya. No, Houston at 100 degrees sucks. Uh -huh. Humidity? Forget about it. 
Cofield and company will be back in minutes right here on ESPN Las Vegas. What are your expectations for your Raiders this season? Man, you know, it's a tough division. Now, back to Cofield and company, live from the Finley Toyota Studio. We got a new head coach. You know, we're kind of starting over again. My expectations is that, you know, we'll do well in the division and uh, get to the playoffs and, and win a game and hopefully win two or three. Gabby, the Prince, second Prince song. I watched Purple Rain this weekend. Really? Before all this started, yeah, I happened. I threw it. I threw it on there, and I, I put. I was putting stuff. I, I shared something on Twitter, and I put something on my IG story. Just a picture of Apollonia holding the flower, and I said in quotes, "That ain't Lake Minnetonka." Huh. A lot of people don't know that reference, but that's okay. I did see a kid in the gym before I came here today. He's walking through, young kid, and he had a shirt that said Minnetonka. Uh, Fayette Department. I, was, I stopped. I was like, "Hey, you went to Minnetonka High School?" He goes, "Yeah." I said, "So did I." From eighty-two to eighty-five. Nice, yeah. very nice. Small world. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Poll question up: Willie's goat entertainer. Is it Prince, Michael Jackson, or Chris Brown? It's up at ESPN Las Vegas. Still zero votes for Chris Brown. That says a lot. Uh, your goat TV show. When was the last episode? Or the final episode of the season? Was it 15 years ago now? 15 years ago today was the last episode of The Sopranos. How many times have you gone back and watched all of it? Since then or overall while it was... I've probably seen it... I don't know the exact number of times, but I would have to say... So figure 15 years. It's been about five years since I did this. But after it ended, it there was a, there was a specific two months that I'd start watching the series. It was always the day after the Super Bowl... I'd watch it from start to finish, and then around mid-July, leading into the football season, because the football season was busy. So I'd watch this. I'd watch the entire series twice a year. Wow! So for, figure I've done. I haven't done it for about five years, since really my APs has and freelance stuff has picked up. So figure t- at least twenty times. One of my goat singers from the '80s, alternative Morrissey. So Morrissey's in town, July first, second, sixth, eighth, ninth. Caesar's Palace, Viva Las Vegas. Show for Morrissey. We've got two tickets right now. You can grab your own tickets at Ticketmaster.com. But Morrissey from the Smiths, unbelievable solo career, going to be here on July 1st, 2nd, 6th, 8th, 9th. We've got two tickets. Call her 7364-1100. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. Back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. All right, there you go. There you go. Remember I told you last week, the New York Post, and, you know, this is what some media people do. These successful ones, of course, have no soul, so they just look for clickbait. And the New York Post talked about Yankee disasters that aren't going to be fixed anytime soon. That was the headline. It's probably a little smooth, smoother than that, but they did say Yankee disasters. I was like... Disasters. 
Like, they're 33 and 15 at the time. Disasters. So they were micro-focusing on, while the lineup has been boffo and their pitching's been even better, they were getting on Joey Gallo, who you hear there, hit two dongs. Yeah. They were concentrating on him and Aaron Hicks. And maybe it worked. I don't know. Maybe the guys read the paper and they're like, oh, I'm mad. But Gallo and Hicks have actually played really well since. I don't, you know, I don't care so much about Aaron Hicks, but I do. Joey Gallo, because we want him to do well. And it was getting to a point, Willie, where like, maybe this is one of those guys who just can't play in New York. Well, I mean, and I, the thing is, we're going to be focused in, obviously, on the locals because of because of who they are. But it's, you know, they stand out to us and then they're going to the dollar signs and what they're expected to bring. But there are other players around the league that struggle. They're struggling at certain times and then they break out. Baseball's a long season. And I mean to to call to to single them out, calling them a disaster when the Yankees are having an exceptional season. It's been them and the Dodgers atop the major league standings for the most part. It's also fifty games into a baseball season. Yeah, like uh, I was already seeing stories about oh the Mets going to run away in the NL East. Have they just gone so far out? The Braves can't catch them, and now the Braves are killing it. It's a long season. Well, and guy, you know what? There was no spring training, and some guys, pitchers and hitters, they get off the bad starts. Well, and I'm going to, I mean, uh, of course, I'm going to be the cheerleader and promote always our boy Bryson Stott. Yep. And I don't know if you saw a tweet earlier, but from April 8th through June 1st, Stott was hitting 143, slugging 169. From June 3rd through yesterday, post Girardi. Yep. Hitting 318, slugging 773 with three home runs and nine RBI. He was, I believe, plus 105 to go uh, to, to get a base hit today, over half a hit. Yeah. He's one for one. Well, and Bryce Harper took a little shot at Joe Girardi, you know, basically suggesting, hey, how about you play Bryson Stott every day and leave him in the lineup? So the, all these names we mentioned, baseball players now could be in the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame 20 years from now, right? Absolutely. Well, after their career is over, their hometown heroes. Let's talk about a hometown hero who's going in. This year, Amy Purdy's story is amazing. Cimarron High School, multiple medalist in the Olympics. Amy is going into the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame next Friday. She's up with Cofield and Company with Stephen Willie. Amy, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you guys? We're good. We're excited about the uh, Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame. For you, I mean, you've accomplished so much. <laughs> you've been on TV. I mean, you've written a book, motivational speaker. What is going into this Hall of Fame mean to you? Oh my gosh, it's so much. You know, it's so incredible. Really, it, it's surreal. <laughs> Growing up in Las Vegas, I, I was never an athlete. Um, I was more of an artist. So a lot of, you know, my classmates who I grew up with probably had no idea. I didn't have any idea. I'd go on to become a professional athlete. But I was really passionate about snowboarding. And so uh, it's just amazing where your passion can take you. And I, I mean, I'm just incredibly honored. It, it's it's an honor to be honored by your hometown. Well, and Amy, you, you know, you talk about your classmates, but you came from a time at Cimarron where it was one of the first four expansion schools after the original 10. And at Cimarron, it was such a tight knit in the early to mid 90s from Dr. Denson down to Lynn McCann to Greg Spencer on the football field, Calvin Valvo, Hank Girard. I mean, the list of names. Of, of people that they they were historic names in the Clark County School District that gravitated to Cimarron Memorial, and that was when Green Valley, Durango, and Cheyenne also came into the district. Were there any names, because I may be familiar since I've been here for so long, just 
who maybe on staff or some of the athletes, because that was a time when, like I said, Cimarron was a very big deal, and it was a very tight-knit group um, throughout the student body. Well, I'll tell you what. I was not, like I said, I wasn't an athlete. My sister would have a lot more to say about this because my sister was, like, head cheerleader. Her boyfriend was head football player. They were on student council. That was never me. (laughs) I was, like, outside of the athlete space completely. I mean, I, like I said, I, I took all my classes were art. I lined up every elective to be art. I never played a sport in my life. Uh, but snowboarding was like, it wasn't a sport to me. It was a lifestyle. I met this group of skateboarders who were also artists. They took me snowboarding in Brianhead for the first time, which my family had a condo up there as well, and my, my family skied. But I was never good at skiing, and I tried snowboarding for the first time and absolutely fell in love with it. And so snowboarding became, it was like what I did outside of school. It's, uh, I, I'd, I'd get out of school at 1 o'clock, so I set up my whole senior year to be all art classes. I'd get out of school at 1 o'clock and head up to Lee Canyon or go up to Brianhead and spend the weekend. And so it never, it never, I never looked at myself as an athlete, and really I didn't hang out with any athletes. It wasn't until I lost my legs at the age of 19. So I got something called bacterial meningitis or the bacteria. I I think it's like meningococcal meningitis is what it was called. So basically what happened is the day after uh, high school, the day after I graduated high school, I moved to Salt Lake City to become a massage therapist. And I went to massage school out there. And my plan was I wanted to travel the world and snowboard, and I wanted to have a job that would travel with me, that would basically, you know, fuel this habit of snowboarding. And I wanted to live in different ski resorts around the world. And so I went to school. I ended up getting hired back in Vegas at the Venetian Hotel at Canyon Ranch. I I was honored to work there. I was the youngest massage therapist hired, and um, and it's just such a well-known brand, and I absolutely love my job. And so I thought, okay, I'll stay here in Vegas. I'll work for a year. Then I'll travel and snowboard. And just a few months after starting work is when I felt sick one day. I, I went home from work early, and within 24 hours, I was in the hospital on life support, given less than a 2% chance of living. And it come to find out it wasn't the flu like we thought. It was bacterial meningitis, which is incredibly rare and incredibly deadly. I fought for my life. I ended up losing my kidney function. I had to have a kidney transplant, which I had there in Vegas at UMC. Um, I had a kidney transplant. My dad gave me one of his kidneys. I lost my spleen. I lost both my legs below the knees. And my whole world changed. And I had no idea, especially at that point, that I would ever snowboard again, let alone, you know, go on to the Olympics and, and, you know, go as far as I did with it. But I knew that I wanted to figure it out. I knew that that's, that's all I cared about, really. I didn't even think about, will I walk again? Will I walk again? I thought, am I going to snowboard again? Okay, the walking will come. I just need to figure out if I can snowboard again. And so I just I went on this mission and ended up making a pair of feet for snowboarding because there weren't any feet on the market. Those feet are actually in the Smithsonian on display right now. Wow. And, um, <laughs> and it just led me down this path, you know, just being, just following my heart, following what made me feel alive, which was snowboarding. And then now having this challenge of trying to figure it out. I think the challenge is what motivated me as well. You know, you can look at your challenges as roadblocks, or you can look at them as almost like something that you have to figure out that you're driven to try to find a way, and and that's really how it fueled me, and it, it led me further than I ever could have imagined. 
all before the age of 21. I got to ask you, <laughs> as, so when all this happened before, and then in between the little bit of sort of that purgatory time in between where you said, okay, I'm going to be on a mission and this is what I want to do to overcome it. How did you sort of deal with the mental health that comes with that? Because there had to have been, a, at some point you hit a low point and say, enough is enough. I have to move forward. Yeah. And, and, you know, those low points kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, when I was in the hospital, I vowed to not be a victim and I, I didn't want to feel like a victim. I wanted to feel like this happened, and now I just got to move forward with what, what I have. So I actually never cried when I was in the hospital. I cried one time because they ripped tape off, and I had shingles, and it hurt, and it was like my whole immune system was knocked down. So I cried at that point, but I remember saying, I'm not crying about my legs. I'm crying because I just don't want to be touched anymore. But it wasn't because I was just so tough. I mean, I just, I think I was just forced to be very present when, when you're in survival mode. Um, I think you're just dealing with what's right in front of you. You can't really think about the past. You can't really think about the future. That's almost like a beauty of tragedy is like you are forced completely into the present moment. And so I didn't really struggle mentally that hard in the hospital because I really didn't know what to expect. It wasn't until I got home and, and just started to realize, like, oh, my gosh, I'm coming home in a whole different body. My, my life is completely different. The shoes that I wore, I can't wear. The clothes that I wore, I can't wear. People look at me different. Now I'm in a wheelchair. Plus, I was faced with having a kidney transplant. So not only did I lose my legs, which is big enough in itself to wrap my head around, but then I had to wrap my head around the fact that there's a chance I would need a kidney transplant. And it was just, it was incredibly overwhelming. So there's definitely a lot of, a lot of downtimes. But I also, what kept me together, honestly, is my family and being incredibly grateful for what I did have and just focusing on that. That's it. Really just focusing on what was right in front of me. Like when I was, when I was at home with my family, even though I didn't have my legs, even though I was sitting in a wheelchair, I felt loved and I felt full and I felt happy. I was with my family. So as long as I kept myself present, everything was okay. Like nothing was falling apart right then. It's when I would think about the future or realize, oh, I, I, you know, I want to go out with my friends, but I can't wear what I was wearing. And now I'm stuck wearing tennis shoes because my feet don't wear other feet or don't wear other shoes and my legs aren't working. You know, it's kind of all of that that started to get a little overwhelming, but all I could do is just be completely present, be grateful for what I had and, and really be patient and just kind of let it slowly play out and just try not to get too far ahead of myself. Try not to let the fear of my life and what if, you know, get in the way, just truly be in the moment. And it forced me to be present and it taught me to be present and it taught me a lot of patience as well. And and, and so I, I really, you know, I've really continued to kind of live my life that way. It's almost like, when you are present, then you kind of figure things out and you realize you've got everything you need already, you know, and, and, and I still felt like the same person. I, I, I felt like I still want to snowboard. I still want to travel the world. I still had these dreams and goals. I just had to figure out how I was going to do it. But the fact that I felt so deeply that I would, it's like, I, I just let that drive me. I didn't let the how drive me. I let the why drive me. And so I, I just focused on that and like, truly like, just the way that the path unfolded, I, I, I promised myself I would snowboard again that season, like that this, the year that I lost my legs because I had never missed a season before of snowboarding. And so I ended up um, 
getting on a snowboard for the first time with two prosthetic legs in at Lee Canyon at Ski Lee, or now I guess it's Las Vegas Ski and Snowboard Resort. And I got on a snowboard, and it was disastrous. My legs came off and detached completely from my legs. And But it, 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 it motivated me to try to figure out, okay, if I can keep them attached, if they can move the way I need them to, I'll be able to do this again. So it really it kind of just became this challenge and the path kind of just, you know, unfolded as I went. Amy, you're awesome. We want to hear so much more of this story. We're going to be out doing a live show uh, before the ceremony next week. So that's going to be really cool for the audience. You can go to hofgala2022.givesmart.com. You can get your tickets to see Amy go in with all these other hometown heroes. Your story is so good. I know you've got a book out. We just posted that on social media. We're actually up against it. So thank you for a couple of minutes here. We're uh, looking forward to seeing you on Friday, okay? Yeah, thank you so much. Great talking to you. There she is. Amy Purdy, you can uh, check out her book, On My Own Two Feet. We just posted it up at ESPN Las Vegas. It's an Amazon buy. You can get it lots of places. But what an inspiration. And, you know, she... Heads up that great class going into the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame. That's next Friday. Check out the address. Look into the tickets. You're going to want to be there.